This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys, welcome to part two of our two-parter on front of house vendor staff for a GP. So last week, a little bit of a recap. We covered the type of buyers, your numbers only, experiential basically what those two boiled down to. So today we're going to get down to the part of the booth that no matter what everyone pretty much experiences at some point, And that is the front of house mm -hmm. greeter, your sales, that kind of stuff. When you walk up and you're like, Hey, do you have this card? And they either say, yes, we do. No, we don't. Or I don't know. Or this other booth has it look mm. there. They're the ones that by and large are the first impression for you is like, a shopper and are honestly as a vendor one of the most important things to stock with people who are like knowledgeable good and have a lot of the intangible customer service skills that you can't really train in yes. someone yeah so let's get taken away yeah, super important so uh we've we've identified uh, a few and the, the two obvious ones are uh, the knowledge guy and the, the knowledge person and the suggestion person and the knowledge person is somebody that isn't just going to tell you if they have cards in stock, but are going to be able to guide you better based on what you're doing. They're not going to take a guess or just kind of push you in a, in a direction. They'll be able to have a fairly in-depth conversation with you to really understand what you're looking for and help you find what you are looking for, be it a, a single at their booth, sealed, what have you, or maybe even somewhere else uh, on the floor, because that is something that vendors generally do take stock of. Um, one of the last things I do for one of the vendors I work for on setup day before the doors open or maybe after doors open and people are there and all booths are set up is uh, case other booths to see if any of the gaps that we know we have are filled anywhere what yep. their price is and grab buy lists yeah and that allows me to be more of the knowledge guy in the room for magic i'm kind of the same and i like to sum it up as you know i want to be the first guy you come to not necessarily because i have what you need because if i don't have what you need i know where you can get it yeah. and having that guy at a booth and it's Honestly, it's it's knowing what other vendors have. It's also a little bit of knowledge about the metagame. Yes. And a lot of times, this is the guy that like comes into your FNMs every week. They spike standard. They spike whatever format they love. And they're like, man, I would really love a chance to work for you guys. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, this is the guy that does that. Yeah. And they know the metagame. So if you're there for an actual like standard GP, they know what cards you need. And they know, you know what, we don't really have a whole lot of commons and uncommons, but there's two to three vendors at every single show that make bank yes. bringing a couple four rows of commons and uncommons. Because, look, Serum Visions may only be a quarter card at the time, but when you need it right that day, suddenly it's $2. Yep. You're going to pay it. Oh, yeah. Because you have to. Absolutely. And, we call it the idiot tax at the yep. vendor booth. And the knowledge guy, I think, as you alluded to, is basically the equivalent of the numbers guy. Yeah. You're going to know what's in your booth at almost any point, save for when it sells out, 
you'll be able yeah. to direct a person as necessary to what they're looking for and generally help them uh, along the way and one of the the things that helps me do that is like day before pricing especially if it's the case for the event oh yeah so the modern the standard the legacy cases are super important at those events so rest in peace legacy grand prix but knowing what we have not only is a benefit to the client who's looking for the cards because i can direct them to somewhere in the case maybe but i can also answer their questions very quickly because a lot of times time is of the essence when it comes yeah. to working with somebody if somebody has time to sit around and bs i can tell that from the first few seconds of interacting with them at my booth or if they're a grazer which is a term pulled from uh the produce department at supermarkets where somebody just grazes yeah. through like the grapes and just pops them in their mouth. They're just there looking at stuff. You can see the grazers from a mile away. They generally walk booth to booth and it's in between round stuff or waiting for their events to fire. They're there. They have everything they need and they may not even buy something at all at the event despite the fact that they say like, oh, if I see it or if I see something interesting, I'll pick it yeah. up. And that's super important as the knowledge person because that also allows you to be very effective. It allows you to disengage as necessary and let the grazer graze. I've had uh, vending in 2018 to 2019 a number of times where if I'm going to be the point person and the knowledge person, been asked by uh, my show lead why I wasn't helping somebody. And I told them flat out, look, they've been here before. They're just grazing the cases. Yeah. They're not actually looking for anything. And that's they super important because now they know that that person does need to be interacted with at some point, just re refresh, yeah. re-up, but you don't need to pay as meticulous attention to that person as you would somebody who's looking for cards for the standard event or the modern, the light, what have you, right? That person, or maybe somebody who's just looking to know where your buyers are, despite the fact that you have a sign or if you have a buy list. Yeah, So, and I, I think it's important too that a lot of times without it even being spoken, <laughs> this person, by everyone at the booth is seen as like the knowledge guy and it's still turn around and be like you know hey jason yes uh do we have any foil pet exiles and you can immediately rattle it off or you can say they were here they're not now sorry man we're out yeah and that's one of those things that as a vendor when you're running a booth and you're trying to make a good impression it's critically important to have that guy Yes. Because it is the kind of person that you can't really train that. Like, if you were going to tell someone, mm -hmm. how often do you refresh on a grazer? Uh, once I know they're a grazer, unless they leave the booth and come back, never. I'd never refresh okay. a grazer personally when they're at the booth. I will re-engage when they come back just to see if maybe something did pop in. And that's more out of politeness than anything else. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's an easy one. But if you're looking for the standard guy yep. and it's we've been in the standard meta for six months now. So the meta is kind of fleshed out yep. and you're looking for really end the weed stuff. Like when I was on Jund, one of the local stores had a lot of Enchantress and Modern. Mm -hmm. So I I had back to nature's in my build box. Yeah, yeah. You need to be into the weeds about that. There's oh, no yeah. way to train that kind of like do we have this random obscure bulk common from m12 yes you just have to know it and identifying that guy and having that guy is incredibly important because it does 
it makes sure that your grazers, hey, are you looking for anything? No, you'll know it when you find it. Cool, you know, have have a great day. And your standard guy that comes up clearly disheveled with his backpack over one shoulder, deck box in the other, and he opens it up when he gets to the booth because he can't remember what he needs. Yep. You know exactly where that guy is and what to do with them yes. as well. Yeah, that, a- absolutely. And the, the kind of hidden benefit to the knowledge person is that it really does help your sales velocity throughout the weekend because that's the person yeah. that's going to be able to, as we keep saying, to kind of button this one up, just snap answer your questions. They're going to know where things are if they have them. And specialty uh, you know, to a format or not. That person's just going yeah. to be able to help uh, churn through sales, and that's the person that's really just going to you know, push your numbers. Yeah. The uh, suggestion person at front of house is more about trying to help somebody work their way kind of through a problem. You know, they're, they'll, oh, they'll work their way through the word problem until they get to a solution. And I liken this to when somebody wants to look for a bunch of cards for an EDH deck. Yeah. As a specialty person, I'll sit there and wax poetic with somebody about their EDH deck if we don't have to just move sales along and just kind of BS with them to really get down to, okay, what exactly are you looking for? As the, as the knowledge person, I am woefully uh, under-equipped to deal with that kind of EDH player in the moment. Yeah. Because I want to churn sales. I love talking to people about EDH. It's like talking to people about Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon. Yeah. It, because I don't know what they're doing. They might tell me the general, and, I, and I'll and i miss. It happened yeah. uh, at Vegas. People were like, that uh, 2019, Commander 2019 had just released, and somebody was talking to me about the Jeskai Angel, and I was like, oh yeah, I just saw a list go by. It seems like people have kind of standardized on this thing, and the guy was like, well, I'm doing this other thing, and I'm off in my own little world. I'm like, all right, bud, I can't help you at all, but let's talk. See you. Well, I mean, yeah. I can help you with sales, but I can't help, like, oh, this is Suggest. the theme. Here's the stuff. you got to yeah. tell me what you're doing now. I have to pull that information from you and start suggesting, well, if you like this, maybe you like that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think it's that's also important to have the guy that has the knowledge because if you're adequately staffed, you have a guy that can sit with him while pushing sales yep. with other people periodically yeah. that can have a 20-minute conversation about what that guy's doing with his Jeskai Angel deck that's completely out of, you know, what anyone else at the booth may know. Yes. Just because, hey, look, I watch EDH content. I play at my LGS every week. We've got a good crowd. I talk. I'm in discords, whatever. Mm-hmm. And... That's why not just adequate staffing, but having the appropriate people staffed yes. is important. Because sometimes with a grazer, this person who has the conversation, it's like, hey, man, if you need anything, let us know. Looking for anything in particular? Uh, no, I'm just browsing for EDH cards. I'll know it when I see it. All right, cool. They can engage that person in the conversation. Then, well, what do you like doing in EDH? Who's, who's your general? Yep. And then you have a... T- hour-long conversation that you can get through that results in a thousand dollar sale sometimes mm-hmm. just because the guy had the knowledge yes. because he had the like casual association oh well you like this here's something approximate to that to kind of push you into it yeah right there was a time where a guy came up to a booth i was working and he's like oh you know i i really want to build uh Boborig most because you know one of my 
one of the guys at my LGS has Uno, and I just want to see him fight it out. By the end of the conversation with me, he'd bought a UC to build Uno. He's still got stuff for Baboricmos, yeah. but you have to ha be able to have the conversation and engage and say, all right, let's... Yeah. And this is this is kind of a pattern. So your knowledge guy is, similar to what you said, your numbers guy is a buyer. Your conversation guy is your experiential buyer. So it's the same thing. It's just in purchases and sales. Mm -hmm. And the skill sets more or less overlap with a little bit of difference, obviously. But that's what you want in the front of house as well. Yeah. Not just on your buyers. Yep. Um, and it's not like anyone is better or worse than another because somebody's no. specialty is somebody else's weakness. So you, generally speaking, shift that stuff around. Yeah. Like, my my gaps are well unless i'm actively playing standard will almost always be standard and the nebulous world that is edh because everybody's it's impossible unique, to know it all yeah everybody's unique snowflake right and i know yeah. some cards that people play and there are a lot more that people play that i don't and i have to look them up or have them tell me and like yeah. so i kind of transition roles in that regard and i don't mind it at all and i like being in both roles because it is refreshing to do both and yeah absolutely it gives you some time off now, there's this, this kind of third role is actually one I associate more with uh, buyers than anything else. And it's this kind of uh, catch-all or, or roamer through the booth where it's somebody that just kind of plugs gaps as they, they see them. So they're there to, to do sales and help people as necessary. And, you know, for the first, let's say, five rounds of a constructed event, you'll have kind of all hands on deck and you might pull a buyer back because people are there to play in that constructed event. If I said standard, I meant constructed. And yeah. really round five is that first big bubble, maybe round four where you'll just see attribution or attrition from the main event. And people drop and that's when that, you need to put that person you pulled back. Yep. But... So, Until and that, then. Exactly. That's exactly it. And, and they can plug holes. So you have all hands on deck for sales, right? So you leave your most experienced buyers uh, at the buy station. Maybe they're still getting set up, syncing things, et cetera. And you, and you pull one of your buyers out. And they become this kind of catch-all, right? And they just help sales as they see fit. They might have to ask a lot of questions because they're not there to do sales for the weekend. You know, what do we have this? Do we not? Where would it be, et cetera? And then they go back to buying. And for the most part... and the, the booths that I work, unless you're Jeremy Muir and you buy for 72 hours straight, you get up and go to the bathroom, you stretch your legs, you want to relax a little bit, you yeah. step back and you become sales for a little bit. And you become that extra person so you can help move things along and kind of relax your brain for a little bit from buying at, at any given time. Yeah. And you that's when you'll see this extra person. Or maybe in uh, the case of one of the booths that I work with, you have, you know, a money guy. And all buys at the booth go through this person. So they're always running numbers, keeping track of things. But when things are slow, either on the buy side or the event as a whole, they'll jump in and they'll be this, this catch-all. And I don't think that happens uh, everywhere, but this is kind of a position you'll see at most, if not all, booths just this yeah. one person just kind of mad ladding around trying to talk to everybody that hasn't been helped with yet. And I, I think it's oftentimes it's one of the people in charge uh, 
where it's kind of like, well, you know, I'm I'm the show lead, so I'm going to fill in where need be because you never know when there's going to be a question yep. that they're the only one that can answer. So they have to be immediately there helping right away. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think a lot of people may kind of like overlook going into their first show. That's something they may end up having to do. And it's super important because it really does make it so that like all right you know there's a hole we're gonna fill it it's Mm -hmm. a smooth experience and it's it's as easy as them like you know you have your conversational guy that's in an hour-long conversation with an edh person they say hey do you need something guy says yeah i need a couple paths to exiles you know where they are in the case you're, I call them the vulture because they swoop in and then they leave. Yep. Uh, you grab the vulture and you're like, hey, they need a path to exile. Can you get them? Sure. Yep. And then they're immediately there filling in whatever holes they need. And I think that that for me is probably one of the most interesting roles I've ever had at a booth is as the vulture because it was the best time was GP Phoenix this past year. Yep. Okay. Uh, it was modern event and i remember round three saturday was a shit show because a bunch of people showed up that were just there to hang out oh yeah Yeah, uh, yeah. for edh and then you had people that were starting to drop from the main to go to the ptq because they redid the ptq system that weekend and it was pretty good ev so people started doing that and all of a sudden our buyers were slammed. So I had been pulled from buying because we had three buyers, but only two buy stations set up because we brought that much product with us. I got pulled. We literally moved a bulk rare box over on top of another one. And I sat there with a buy mat and had to buy from people while people were browsing the bulk rare box a foot away. Occasionally it happens mixing their bulk rares up with the buy because it was just so crowded, but that was where I was tasked to go at that time because that's where we needed. Yeah. And it's one of those, you know, if you've ever had a job, you know, sometimes there's things you have to do that suck, but you got to do it to make it work. Exactly. So you do. Yep, you got to be a gap filler. And, and it works in both yep. directions, like you said, uh, buys and sales. And it, it, the, the Romer job is pretty interesting to me, and it's a lot more hectic than just yeah. working standard front of house. Luckily, I haven't really had to do it, but... When it happens, I'm at an anime convention, and that means I'm tasked with finding things I have no familiarity with in a booth. Yeah. Yo, I need this Final Fantasy card. Dope. They all look the same. Yeah. Or, like, I need this Yu-Gi-Oh thing. Okay, this is day three, and our Yu-Gi-Oh cases are a mess. Tell me what type of card it is so I can start looking for colors. Yeah. Like, man, that, that role gets real rough at an anime convention real quick. And then it does for sure. As we kind of move through, we have same with similar to buys, we have specialty sales roles as well. There are people that are better equipped to handle a lot of the high-end purchases, and not just because they might have been lined up ahead of time and went through that person, so a deal has already been struck, but because they understand the margins on those cards, where they were picked up, what they what has to be made on those cards, and so that they can actually begin striking a deal for something at gp vegas we had lined up a sale ahead of time for a sealed international collector's edition box and 
the uh, the person came in cash in hand and sat there with uh, our high-end guy in the in the back of the booth and worked out a structured deal for it because it was cash up front yeah which is worth so much more than uh credit at that point in time especially in vegas yeah in vegas you need as much cash as yeah. possible so if you're if you're coming to a booth and you've got cash up front you're gonna go a long way yeah. just and, saying oh yeah absolutely and so that kind of specialty role does still exist on on the sell side for some lower end things sometimes it'll just go through a show lead or somebody up a chain like hey this person wants to buy this this is the total uh they have cash in hand they would like to do this and you know you just run the percentage real quick and it either works or it doesn't or you come to an agreement in the middle which is usually what happens but that only has to go so far up the chain maybe you just go to the sales lead not the show lead for something that large for you know alpha beta limited for power for um like identity cards for the old school format vintage etc you're going to go to this high-end person and see if you can make a deal and even if you were to catch you know either one of us at the booth if we're not that high-end person that we can send us like hey i want to buy this and you're like okay cool they take a look at it like all right i want it this is how much i'm going to pay if you're not that high-end person you still yeah you're like all right man let me let me go check and you 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 know you take the card and you take the offer and you you go work it out with the high-end person and either they give you a price back and like it's this firm or yep. the high-end person comes over and, and takes the the deal from there and it is also another very appreciable role for events where you do have those high-end cards like we've talked about before they don't make it to every show necessarily but when they're there it's very nice to have somebody that can represent that side of the business overall we had yeah. um the first run of war of the spark the uh and the anime lily i don't know if that one is the rarer one or if the second uh, version was the the foiling is different the text box is foiling yeah. one reverse the other right and that sat in our cases f- from war of the spark release up until our uh vegas maybe magic maybe the magic fest and run uh stuff ended but we put it right with the power and everything so the moment yep. somebody were to ask about that card because it was well over 3k at that point in time you know i i'd ask somebody and i i think it's important too that this is this is one of those things that doesn't make or break a booth necessarily not at all but it is probably one of the things that leads to the most repeat business Mm -hmm. because you know there's a finite amount of power out there and a lot of it just changes back and forth between the same few hands uh or it's someone who plays old school and in that case putting a face to someone Uh, there's one booth that i work with that literally uh, booth lead every time he's like i don't want a piece of power to leave this booth without me shaking the guy's hand okay yeah because like it does make that impression and it's like all right well if you're at every gp and i come to a gp and i need some high-end stuff or i'm thinking about selling you shook my hand we had that interaction i'm gonna come back and i'm gonna try to make that deal so it's it's not just about having the specialist knowledge it's about the tailored experience on top of that Oh, yeah. It's about knowing there's a guy. Yep. We have a guy you can talk to. Oh, you mean I get to talk to the guy? I'm special because I get to talk to the, the guy. guy. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a really big underrated part of, I think, in general, any sales experience, not just 
the you know high-end sales experience or foreign sales experience or whatever because it is it's at the end of the day it's still a community and it's nice to have that specialist there they can just rope that guy in and say look you know complete transparency this is what i'm in on whatever it takes to make the the transaction personalized and i think that on the high end and in the specialist roles that's a lot harder to find the right guy that can specialize it in the right way. Mm-hmm. But it gets you a lot of low velocity, high dollar sales. Yes. Uh, which obviously outside of Vegas and really Eternal Weekend is not something that you're there for. You know, you don't require yeah. it to get through the weekend. No, not at all. You but have a few nice. notables, um, like Niagara was Legacy, SeaTac yeah. uh, is another area you're going to want to bring that kind of person to. Um, New Jersey, another one. Oh, yeah. Um, and, like, the best treatment I've ever had at Booth's Humblebrack is when I bought Power. Because you yeah. get passed up to that guy or the owner, and they just treat you... They just... It's not like royalty or with kid gloves. They just give you, like another level of treatment and it feels more yeah. like a human interaction than it does just this kind of like faceless interaction on the internet right when i yeah uh the first jersey that i went to i sat down and i talked with the owner of a shop out of vegas uh while i, I was looking at my piece and picked it up we wound up talking and it was the same thing i was like all right i have cash in hand what are you in for on this yeah and he's like it doesn't matter what i'm in for this is what i have to make and i was like all right that's a perfectly fine number like boom and it was under list price and i sat there i talked with the guy for a while and the next new jersey i went to i saw him again at a different booth and like we reminisced yep. for a hot second about that and again when i went to another booth and i was like all right cash in hand this is what i want on this piece and the guy was like all right cool this is the guy you talk to about that he's gonna set you up and i was like all right done and it was another yeah. like great experience of just like shopping through stuff because other than that it's just kind of like you're not like cattle but you're just kind of like churned through a booth quickly unless you're like that EDH yeah. player that's just kind of waxing with somebody for a while but those high-end purchases do like they're a little more humanizing for sure and i think that along with you know the high-end specialist the other specialist role and we kind of touched on this with buyers as well is at you know international booths yep uh, you're a lot of times, you know, the guys from Italy or if they come up, come over from China, China whatever, Japan, yeah. they'll contract someone who is like local, who can handle a lot of the like communication problems, any type of low end managerial stuff. Like so-and-so wasn't happy with a sale. All right. Well, you know, we, we trust you as our guy yeah. to take care of this. It's just like the customer service manager at any retail outlet. And similar to on the buyer side, it's really important for those guys because there are a lot of cultural differences that can lead to negative experiences sometimes. And it's something that, you know, I, there's a couple of guys that are international that I talk to regularly and they're, you know, getting into the booth circuit. And I'm like, Hey man, you ever need a guy? Fine. I'm, I'm happy to work with you. I I will happily represent your stateside brand. So that at the very least, you know, you've got a raging asshole working your booth. So sometimes it works. Yeah, just like feed a, feed me soda and Cheetos. I'm good all weekend. But yeah, yeah. It, it helps 
uh, anchor the customer. They're given uh, you know a friendly face, somebody that they can kind of create a, a, a rapport with over time, especially as you see them uh, throughout, even if they're flying internationally to these events. And yeah. it, it's super useful, super, super useful. Even across the border, there are a handful of Canadian vendors that contract uh, within the U.S. Sometimes it is like actual representation of the company within the U.S. Yeah. and they do um, some buys and sales just um, like offline online but offline so like facebook marketplace etc they're given rain to do that within the, the u.s or canada vice versa and they're always a face at the booth no matter what right yeah but for the most part that's basically like all the the larger roles that you're going to see at some of this stuff there are some more hidden roles we keep talking about the show lead like uh, or event lead stuff like that and you'll never know that you're talking to you know that person that's that's logistical and you know, not necessary yeah. for this conversation as a whole because they're responsible for a side of the show that really does not impact the customer per se. They're there more for representation, to answer questions, to deal with booth logistics. You know, if CFB comes around and they're like, hey, how's the booth? You send CFB to your show lead and that guy's going to say, all right, everything's great or... Get us some fucking chairs. Yeah. Whatever the case may be. Yeah, we had, we we're supposed to have power and we don't. That That kind of stuff, right? So that's what there's a jackhammer going on constantly yesterday. Can we please move? Yeah, uh, the the door behind us is leaking water. We think there's a flood. <laughs> that was a good one. You know, but that's your show lead. Your show lead's going to take care of that. Yeah. Oh, but, uh, aside from that, though, I think we're going to move on to picks, right? Yep, let's do it. Right. Uh, I'll go first this week because my pick is cool. So uh, Mine is cold. It's true. It is very cold. Uh, I... I'll go with a card out of Ixalan now that it's finally rotated. You know, stocks dried a little bit. Um, we're finally starting to see some movement, and it is uh, Thaumatic Compass. Uh, it's, a, it's a flip artifact from Ixalan. It costs two, um, and the trigger is at the beginning of your end step, if you control seven or more lands, you transform transform Thaumatic Compass, and it basically transform into transforms into Maze of Ith. So uh, this card kind of came up quickly on me. It's something that I, I've kept in the back of my mind because they keep printing maze effects and don't just mean maze of ith. They would, they, there are a number of ways now to remove a creature from combat with a land. Either you exile it with mystifying maze, you remove it with maze of ith, you have thaumatic compass. But these kinds of cards fell out of favor back in the heyday of uh, Commander, somewhere around the second product line. This idea that you wanted to slow down the game and play the maximum amount of magic just kind of fell out of favor. But Thalmetic Compass kind of snuck up in me, like I said, and it's pretty interesting. There are three foil printings of this card and only one non-foil, which to me is really unique. Yeah. So it, it makes us uh, a little a little weird to follow, but we're going for a ride. So the playability in EDH is really high overall because as I mentioned it was part of this the heyday of EDH where it's a lot of pillow forty stuff but now that we're seeing EDH build out Watsi supporting it we're seeing a ton of generals across all colors that want to do for the most part similar things but in a disparate fashion and initially this list of generals you just see like okay there's a little bit of rampy stuff uh, in Sasia, there's some hey slow down with if and this card just kind of runs the gamut a lot of times it winds up in lands matter decks with uyo Sasia, like i mentioned lord wind grace which kind of tucks this card away in the uh, utility artifact section of edh rec and of course uh, omnath locus of i play all the lands from my deck right 
Oh, that no, card no. is, yeah, it's our great card. This card is really boosting a lot of these unique things right now. And this is one of them, despite the fact that it's not a land, but it does play into your theme overall. So because this goes alongside uh, land matters decks as a whole, those decks, besides Omnath, are really looking to, as I mentioned before, slow the game down and make you play the most amount of magic possible. It kind of gums up combat. And that isn't a feel-bad strategy. It just stretches out the game, so you might not get three in it a night. You might only get one or two, but people aren't going to be, you know, mad at this overall. Uh, the average build surrounding just uh, Compass and some of the higher-ranking ranking generals on EDH, uh, newest results on MTG, MTG decks for once it's on there, we can see these, these builds are meant to turn the game into basically an absolute quagmire. Uh, MTG decks is actually showing that uh, online, this is in Queen Marchesa style decks. You know, you know, Mardu, slow it, slow it down, you know, hold up. And this was pretty right. interesting to see. Um, we can ignore the historic results because it's like 10 lists total, but we're seeing it in like big red decks, uh, Marchesa, a little bit of uh, Rada, and as we see, you know, Fainax and Lord Windgrace, and most of these are Lands Matter decks. Now, the timeline on this is kind of interesting because we're just seeing a lot of organic growth recently it though it's fairly slow we're most likely looking at nine months before we see a decent return on the set non-foil and as i mentioned it's a three to one ratio on foil printings to non-foil and the set is the smallest delta between uh, average and market price compared to the <laughs> others and seeing movement which is also kind of interesting commander players they build on a budget they do have a price cap so as we're looking at other versions of thaumatic compass you know we see pretty quickly the buy a box promo is 7x the pri the regular uh set non-foil and the pre-release card which is just the set foil with a stamp is 4x the price. So this slots into that kind of budget build really, really well. Now, looking across all of them, and I, I brought the, the graphs up pretty quickly, the other one that looks like it's doing well, and the other one I could recommend, is the buy a box promo. The average mm -hmm. has finally caught up to the market in regards, uh, sorry, the market finally caught up to the average uh, on TCG player, and we should start to see this creep over time. It is the most unique version of this card. The art on the front is unique. On the back, it is uh, part of the overall map to Ixalan. And I think they did this with all the flip cards, so like Search for Azkanta, uh, Vance's Blasting Cannons, etc. Um, maybe not all of them, but I know Search for Azkanta for sure. Unique art, and when it flips, it's unique on the back because it's the Ixalan map. So super unique. They're not going to do it again because it's relevant to Ixalan only. And you can, you know, bet your bottom dollar that over time this one will climb as well. And if you want to yeah. tuck some money in here at like a seven to one, you're more than welcome to, and you will see return on this in a much shorter order than the set non-foil. The it, it, it's it's difficult because this has been flat for so for so long, and nine months is a very long timeline and this is a flip card. We know they like to reprint flips when they can to make it easy, especially with supplementals where they can, you know, game the packs. Yeah. The difficulty with this as a reprint right now is modal double face cards are where we're at. 
we know we're getting uh, God slash equipments in call time, and I would again expect that in Strixheim, uh, in the D&D set, I would expect a lot more variance of what's going to happen, but I would not expect based on trigger flip cards as a reprint for a very long time. And in Magic, that's like two years, right? Yeah. Before we get them in a supplemental somewhere. I don't think they're going to be in Modern Horizons 2. I don't think they're going to be in uh, Time Spiral Remastered. The MDFCs are going to what's carry the, what is going to be you know the future of the game for right now. It gives WotC a lot of space to design, and I think they like that more than design a card in a unique trigger that's thematic and won't ruin a format. So, Well, I think that's the interesting thing that you touch on is thematic in terms of reprint risk. And yes, they're doing the double phase cards, but I would almost think it's less likely to get reprinted because thematically, it is Ixalan. Correct. Maybe I'm wrong. That's part of why I like the buy a box promo also. If you want to squirrel your money away and see uh, it's low oh, yeah. low risk, low reward on the buy a box promo because it while it did rise very quickly over the last couple of weeks, I don't know what the sustainability of demand is for that version of the card because it is the most unique. And like I said, the back of it is unique to Ixalan compared to the regular Thaumatic. I wonder if I can flip this on stocks. No, there's no image for it. I'll see if I can find it real quick on Gather. That's not coming back. That, to me, represents the most optimum place to store your money. But if you're not looking for, like, a year's hold, you want to get out on, uh, you know, Facebook or something quickly, instead of hold for about a year to, buy, to move to BioList, then I think the set non-foil is the way to go. Yeah. Let's spires. All right. It's a pain in the butt, but I can't find the, the backside. No pun intended. I also think that for me, uh, these BioBox promos in general, especially cards like Thematic Compass, that, like you said, have that almost like casual type EDH feel to them, are a really good spot to park money generally uh -huh. because they are such a thematic, unique printing of something. That yeah, this card has more foil printings than none. But I still think that if you can get something unique like that, why not? Because what are they going to do? Are they going to print a secret layer, Ixalan flip lands map stuff? I mean, probably, but it's probably not going to be all Ixalan cards. It's probably going to be some other cards they thought of, or maybe even uh, like Storm the Vault or stuff from Rivals of Ixalan. Yeah. But this Buy a Box promo, that's not happening again. No. I, that is incredibly unique, and I, I do, I think, this card in general is just a solid spot to hit it because it it's a very casual EDH, we're going to hang out and have fun type of card. Yeah. And I don't think that through the history of MTG Finance, we've seen a lot of those cards ever lose value for a significant amount of time. No, unless they're propped just... up by another format. It's kind of ironic that we're talking about this because Maze of Ith was propped up by Legacy, and before Commander really took off, that card tanked. So it's super yeah. ironic in regards to what we're talking about right now. And I... We'll probably spend a lot more time talking about this in some of our other picks just because of how interesting and unique some of these are and the respect yeah. they don't get as uh, a speculative option. 
not all of these are difficult to to flip. Some of them are super yeah. easy. Uh, search, Thaumatic, Compass. I can't remember the name of the one that flips into the um, like Chandra's uh, Pyromaster's Ooh. goggles. That's the one from yeah. Origins. But there's a flip card. It's mine's a Dowsing Rod. Uh, it's one that I picked this the instant sorcery one yes it reduces uh, the i picked CMC. a buy a box prior yeah yeah it reduces the cmc and then flips into chandra's pyromaster uh sorry pyromaster's goggles and the yeah. benefit to that card is it taps for a colorless instead of a red so that one is eminently playable across the entirety of the format but it's not really given the looks it deserves either because it was tucked away in ixalan and blah 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 it's not a showy card but there is a ton of opportunity for these flip cards and the buy a box for almost for these flip cards yeah. and no matter which way you go i think both are a great you know speculative vehicle for the next nine to 12 months especially since we're now like i said finally seeing movement on these after a very long time ixalan finally faded out of memory these cards aren't really being played anywhere else outside edh and now people are you know supply has finally begun to kind of wane the the way we wanted to you know, the CK's buying these for two fifty a piece. They were like three sixty on TCG players, so the delta's not that great. But you just need to give it a little bit of time, and and that'll pick right back, right back up. Trend up um, there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So CK, the number they've been buying over time has picked up. So the buy and the buy list have been a little flat, but that kind of coincides with the price graph you see on the open market, which is just like steady the entire time. If more, if there was more demand earlier, that price would have changed in both locations. So I think this is overall a safe pick for the for the next you know nine months, and then you'll be able to get out of buy a list. See, that's pretty good on it for sure. Especially, I I think that what we've seen with EDH throughout quarantine will only be accelerated by paper magic returning. Yep, absolutely. I think you will see even more of an explosion at that point. Mm -hmm. So, uh, my pick, on the other hand. Snowy, is, snowy north on like this I one. said earlier it's 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 cold snowy north uh, and that is set foil scred from cold snap so why you ask well we're getting snow back with Kaldheim, uh, and I know that scred is on the list or whatever yeah well the list is only non-foil for the card not foil this is a card that periodically shows up in Scred Red, destroys some tournament. Everyone's like, oh, Scred Red's good again. And then it gets hated out of the meadow a week later because that's how it works. It is also something that fits in well with red strategy in general. Uh, not to mention, it's a common. And that's important because Popper exists. Yes. And Popper, I think, will be Jeez. one of those formats that you will see kind of start to take off when paper magic happens again because everyone's been playing edh this entire time and some of them may want something new so you may see popper which had started to pick up a lot prior to quarantine see kind of like a second renaissance and if you look at the price graph for foil scred on mtg stocks you can actually see where at the tail end of 2019 we saw the price increase on this and then quarantine happened and the price started going back down i think it's good because we're getting more snow which means more synergy 
I think it's good because it is playable in modern and pauper, which are both eternal formats and mm-hmm. eternal players love foiling their cards. I also think it's important because Cold Snap was not very well received, not very well open. Oh, God. The fact probably... that they started that set with a fucking joke. Ruffled they knew it was a joke from the so beginning. <laughs> the set was awful. Okay. Oh. It, it was bad. The highlight and... of the set was that, that in one of the theme decks, you could get swords to plowshare with uh, yeah. the weird New Ice border. Age style art. Yeah. Like, oh. Yeah, in the brainstorms like that. That was the highlight of the set was getting those precons. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for this card. I think that at about I think we're sitting at around TCG low right now for light play foil is thirteen forty nine. Our market price is twenty. I don't think it's a problem for this card to hit twenty again easily at a fifteen dollar buy list if that's the route you want to go. I think being able to scoop these up for $9 to $10 all day is exactly where you want to be. I think turnaround time might not be looking at that long, actually. No. Uh, right shortly after Kaldheim release, so like six-ish? No. Right? No. Three? It's the fall set? Or no, uh, February. So like yeah. three to four months. Maybe six to see like... All right, now we're strategizing with all these cards that we have out. Let's take a look at the synergies. You've already seen, uh, what was it, Lavissa start to take off a little bit. You've already seen some cards that have synergy with Kaldheim start to take off. And I think yeah. Scred, as an imminently playable card on its own, is very likely next in line for that list. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, if Into the North took off already. It's dried up everywhere on the internet for foils. So I imagine Scred wouldn't be too far behind. Uh, Absolutely. I think any movement we're going to see in this card right now uh, for the foil is going to be driven on speculation about what happens with call time, how much snow we get, and expectations for other formats. As far as Popper goes, I don't think that changes uh, anything in regards to the format. I don't think Popper is going to get enough snow cards to make Is It Spells or Blue Red Delver any better than it already is so that demand is probably there you're short in other formats for making snow a really viable strategy overall and you know now that we have all these odds and ends permanents like arkham's astrolabe you can get in there but the thing is with scred style decks it counts all your permanents and when you're playing scred red it's like this weird amalgamation of burn and aggro and if you're flinging spells off the top, that's perfectly fine for Scred, but when you start laying threats that aren't snow-based, that's when Scred really loses some of its power. So if Scred as, I'll call it a theme, or an archetype, doesn't get a whole lot of support overall, I think the the demand isn't going to be what people expect, and this card might dip immediately from the speculative demand that we're seeing right now and that's when you might be able to actually come in and scoop these up on the cheap but there is the opportunity that if you don't buy in now and this is just pure fomo and i hate it i hate it hate it that something dumb comes out (laughs) that is a snow permanent and just makes scred a much better card and that archetype overall that much better like if you had if you had to give me one of two decks, either Scred Red or 
Gruel LD for a modern event, I would take Gruel LD all day, every day, because overall, that strategy that, that does fun. Yeah, it does a lot more. And your value engines yeah. aren't scred and some snow permanence. It's tireless tracker and like clues and drawing cards. Yeah. And reliance on these permanents that don't have to be snow. That said, if we get a lot of interact not interact but like threats or other permanents that make the deck better or make scred a better card as a whole something that's you know decent as a removal spell in the format or any format that, that it's seeing playing that's where i think this card just disappears from the internet and is yeah gets relisted at you know infinity i don't think this gets reprinted it just Scred wasn't a problem when no. it was in standard the first time. It wouldn't be a problem now, but I don't think Snow is the focus they want on this set. I think they just want it to be a weird sub theme for draft and just to just have some synergies. And from there, yeah. those draft synergies and what they're doing at the at the uh, the micro level is really what could power Scred forward and power Scred through overall. When you when you yeah. pick this card last week. Like, all I wanted to do was fight you about this pick because of how fucking expensive this card is for, like, no reason in foil, but it's Popper driving it. And, like, those yeah. modern diehards that just live this deck. And the more you look at Scred as an archetype as and you start looking at some of the surrounding pieces, you can say, all right, there really only is maybe 8 to 10 cards off Snow Permanence before it becomes something really viable yeah something much more than it is and, and i think that's the important yeah. part and really what we're going to see over the coming weeks if you're tentative about this because of how much it costs then staying up to date on spoilers and getting an understanding of what the scred red deck is in modern is going to be tantamount like i said i don't think anything yes. happens to popper so you don't need to familiarize yourself with the few decks that i brought up on npg decks it's really going to be that modern powerhouse that you're going to look at you know People are playing Snow Permanence in in Legacy because of Astrolabe. Not a card in that format. It's, this is going to be modern, and I don't think yeah. we'd ever see an entirely Snow deck in EDH because there's so few good Snow Permanence to keep around. That yeah. is just not a viable. It just doesn't matter. Yeah, it's like. Your best permanents are your lands and the one Arkham's Astral Lape you can play. And I'm sure somebody's going to fight me on this one and list a bunch of cards off and by all means throw them at me, please. Just yeah. hard doubt that until call time hits and even after that we might still not have enough good snow permanents to put together, you know, the snow deck. An actual deck. Yeah. So... Again, uh, I like the card if you can swallow the price on this one. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is going. This isn't going to be, call time. Isn't going to make or break the card overall. I think it's going to be good long term. No. You just have to be willing to kind of live through the shakeup that could be call time. And if this card takes off and you have some in your collections now, or you're able to buy in now before this card starts to move even more, then man, I think take the short term gains on this one. Yeah, for sure. But think that's going to be it for this week unless there's anything more you want to talk about nope all right golden then we will see everybody next week uh, we are at mtg cabalcast on twitter facebook patreon stitcher spotify i fixed google podcasts because they're lame Ooh. 
and YouTube. Not they're not lame. I mean DCMA is lame. But we're on YouTube at MTG Cabalcast. Other than that though, I am Halt, I am Reptar on Twitter. You are Get Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>